At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com. Shop Jermaine Ford of Beaver Creek minutes away with an experience miles above. Delivering the right car, the right price, the right way. Come see why more are choosing Jermaine Ford. Just off of 35 east of 675, Jermaine Ford of Beaver Creek. Welcome to Cloudy with the Chance of Podcast with WHIO meteorologist McCall Rydags and Kirsty Zontini, brought to you by Jermaine Ford and Beaver Creek. Remember, you can listen to Cloudy with a Chance of Podcast anytime you want on Apple iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and WHIO.com. A small step for man, a giant leap for mankind. Thank you for listening to Cloudy with a Chance of Podcast. I'm Storm Center 7 Chief Meteorologist McCall Vrydags. This week's episode is all about the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. You just heard the words of Walter Cronkite as he told you what Neil Armstrong said as he stepped down on the moon for the first time. 4.17.40 p.m., 17 minutes and 40 seconds after 4 Eastern Time, yesterday, Sunday, July 20th, 1969. The moment the lunar module touched down on the moon's surface and men will forever remember. We have two special guests on the podcast today, first of which is going to be Cheryl McHenry, WHIO News Center 7 anchor for many years in the Miami Valley. And many people have grown up watching Cheryl, but she's going to talk about what it was like growing up and watching on that faithful day when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin touched down on the moon. Also, later on in the podcast, we're going to talk with Boonshoft astronomy educator Joe Childers. He's been on the podcast before. He's not only going to talk about what went on during that moon landing, but what we've learned since then. 10.56 p.m. Sunday, the moment that Armstrong's foot first touched the lunar crust. I'm really excited to have Cheryl McHenry on today. She's New Center 7 WHIO anchor for many years here. Many. Many. 38 years. Oh, fantastic. I know. Uh, long enough <laughs> that uh, you've covered a lot of big news events. Uh, was not old enough to cover the moon landing. No, I was not old enough to cover it, but I certainly watched it. I mm-hmm. was 12 and a half. Uh, I remember that summer. The buildup was so exciting, for one thing. Um, You know, we did all really look up to the astronauts. Uh, They were held up as national heroes, whether they wanted that title or not. Uh, We knew Neil Armstrong was from Ohio, so that was a source of local pride. And, uh, you know, when you saw every time there was any kind of space mission, the astronauts would come out in their spacesuits, helmets under their arms, walking proudly, smiling, waving at the crowd, And it was just such a unifying thing, even though there were political problems back then. Heck, Mm -hmm. we were in the middle of the Vietnam War. But uh, the whole hype building up and knowing that we were going to go to the moon and we were going to beat the Russians in the space race, that Mm -hmm. was another source of national pride. And then, you know, watching those fuzzy black and white pictures like everybody else did, Mm -hmm. it was late at night. And, uh, you know, when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon and said those 11 famous words, it was just thrilling. And even when I look back now, McCall, and see the coverage, I get excited all Mm -hmm. over again, almost like it's brand new. Where were you? Uh, Were you at home? 
when you were watching it? I was at home it? with my family, uh, with my dad and my five brothers and sisters. My mother had actually passed away the fall before. 1968 was such a turbulent year with uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. being assassinated and Bobby Kennedy being assassinated two months later. And then my own mother lost her battle with breast cancer that fall. So, you know, I look back at 69 as almost a new beginning. Mm, yeah. You know, we'd gone through all that turmoil as a country and then us as a family. And then just to see this this thrilling event mm-hmm. unfold in front of us on TV, it was just a, just a really neat time to be an American. Yeah. Like it is now for me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to, uh, to see this unifying event, again, in the middle of a... Uh, turmoil in the country there was political there was racial strife Mm -hmm. but this was something that was very unifying yeah i saw a lot of documentaries that were you know saying that it was unifying not only for the u.s but for the world as a whole while we did beat the russians there still felt to a sensation worldwide that we did it right you know and i didn't really realize until i was watching the cbs special two nights ago that the astronauts actually went to other parts of the world and were in parades that mm-hmm. celebrated their mission to the moon in China, yeah, for example. So uh, I knew that they were a big deal here and I knew they were in the international spotlight, but I really either didn't know or had forgotten that they were celebrated worldwide. Yeah, and I imagine... Part of that was probably because broadcasting was new in, in that day and age. Now we have news and we know news worldwide in an instant. So it may not have, you may not have seen it. Right. Um, but then again, you're also 12 years old. So I'm sure you're half paying attention, half not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now you did a special story for WHIO about um, one in particular person that was from the Miami Valley. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? About Neil Armstrong. Well, we all know Neil Armstrong was born in Wapakoneta, and he actually lived all over Ohio. I think he even lived up in the Cleveland area at one point growing up because his father was an auditor for the state of Ohio. So they moved all around, but then they moved back to Wapakoneta, where he was born uh, as he was starting high school. Mm. So that's where he went to high school and where he worked at the local, local drugstore to save up money to take flying lessons. And he got his pilot's license at 16, even before he ever had his driver's driver's license he was he had learned to fly so he was really something but then after NASA and it was probably the job teaching aerospace engineering at the University of Cincinnati that brought him to southwest Ohio you know farther south than Wapakoneta but in the book First Man by James Hansen he and his wife talk about they were looking for a place to live and they drove around the beltway and they went into they went to Lebanon and they walked into this little ice cream parlor and uh, Janet Armstrong Neil's first wife and mother of their children, she said, you know, we saw people there that we just thought we could relate to. They felt at home there. They Mm -hmm. felt part of the community. So they ended up buying a farm that's right outside Lebanon. The farm is still there today. We went by and and took some video of it. A a construction guy lives there now. And he says, yeah, sure, feel free to take some video. But the ice cream parlor is the cool thing. It's called the Village Ice Cream Parlor. And it's right across the street in in historic Lebanon from the Golden Lamb restaurant. Everybody knows the Golden Lamb. Well, the Village Ice Cream Parlor also is iconic because it's been the backdrop in some movies um, years ago now. Mm -hmm. But 
Harper Valley PTA that had Barbara <laughs> Eden in it in the mid-70s. And then um, Milk Money, which was an 80s movie with Ed Harris and Melanie Griffith. And it was just, you know, a, a nice backdrop for some of these small town type settings that mm-hmm. they were looking for. Well, uh, for years, it was owned by Phyllis Hartsock, who happens to be Mike Hartsock, our sports director's mother mm-hmm. and, and their family. And uh, Neil Armstrong would come in every day. Uh, she said just about every day, Monday through Friday. Initially, he'd sit at the counter and uh, chat with her. She'd be right there washing dishes. She pointed out where he'd sit. And she said, I only remember him ordering a cup of soup. I don't remember. If he ordered anything else, I don't remember. <laughs> I said, well, what kind did he like? And yeah. she said, well, I know he likes split pea. Okay. Random, <laughs> but then, okay. <laughs> and then eventually, she encouraged him to go sit with a group of businessmen and attorneys who sat at a table sort of up on the upper ledge in the ice cream parlor. And, and Phyllis talked to a local attorney. I think his name was Marvin Young. And she said, why don't you invite Neil to sit with you guys? Because at first, Neil said, oh, Phyllis, they don't want me. She said, yes, they They do. do, yeah. So then he started sitting up there with them. Now, during this time, he had already finished teaching at the University of Cincinnati. That was mostly in the 1970s. But in the 80s, he had an office um, not far from the ice cream parlor. I think he he would have had to drive there, but just a mile or so away, where he answered fan mail Mm. and letters from, he'd get, you know, letters from Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, kids all over the world, people all over the world, and he would answer them as best he could. He had a secretary at that time, and I tried to find her, but found us she's passed away. Mm. Uh, but he would come in there for lunch and got together with the businessmen. And Phyllis remembers he, uh, him and his wife. Occasionally, the family would come in in the evenings, but not very often. And, you know, she just describes him as a super, super guy. Mm-hmm. She said he was very private, um, not unkind. Yeah. You know, very, very great guy, but, but just private. You know, you yeah. can imagine, as one visitor to the ice cream parlor told me when we were there, we recently he says you know can you imagine the pressure he must have had magnitude you you bear this mantle of being mm-hmm. first man on the moon and mm-hmm. you are internationally famous yeah and people want something from you if just if nothing else to, to gawk at you yeah so when they would come in and do that Phyllis, if she heard somebody say, well, is that Neil Armstrong? And she she would ward them off. She'd say, yes, but you don't bother him while he's eating. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so good old Phyllis. Yeah. And the cool thing is that one Christmas... He signed, Neil signed um, a sketch. Milton Kniff, the famous cartoonist, uh, did a sketch of Neil Armstrong in his spacesuit. You know, no helmet on. It's, it's, you've seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, and signed it. And he said to Phyllis, uh, with appreciation for your patience. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and she cherishes that. She's mm-hmm. got the original. A, a copy of it hangs in the parlor today. So people who come in now still see that he was a customer there. Yeah. And that, you know, he, he, was, he was a regular guy. He was just yeah. somebody who happened to be in the right place at the right time. Was chosen. Doing, doing the right job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he just, uh, you know, I think we're all proud of him Mm -hmm. because he was one of us in many ways just down to earth pardon the pun man on the moon down to earth Mm -hmm. but just the the type of person he was and they the theory is too that he was chosen because of his humility because Mm -hmm. he wasn't a flashy guy and right wasn't somebody who would show off about his 
famous because it wasn't about that right it was not about that in fact i reached out to his son rick who still lives in the cincinnati area and he's my age asking him if he would do an interview and he declined because he's been inundated with requests so i understand but he said uh you know something about dad called it ancient history (laughs) it's like well yeah ancient 50 years but you know a lot of us remember it and and i'm and i'm happy that those of you who don't who didn't witness it firsthand Mm -hmm. as it unfolded still get to see it and still Mm -hmm. i hope do you feel that thrill? Oh, when I you do. See it? And I like I, I think to myself what it would be like if if I'm still alive when we land on Mars, because uh. that'll happen at some point. And that's the only thing I can equate mm-hmm. while I, it's exciting. And while I was a little kid, all I wanted to do was become an astronaut. That's and cool. I went to uh, Cape Canaveral in the uh, Kennedy Space Center with my, my father when I was little. And that was exciting just to see that. I can only imagine what it would have been like to see them landing on the moon. And if I ever get to see us landing on Mars, that's probably what it would feel like. Right. Something. And did this kind of indirectly influence you to go into meteorology? Because obviously you've always had an interest in science. Yeah, I always did. Uh, At first, as a little girl, I wanted to, as I just said, be an astronaut. Then at some point realized I... uh, didn't like to fly. <laughs> so that was kind of out Check, of the question. Yeah. yeah. Check that one off. But looking up at the sky was always interested in what's going on up there beyond. And um, so, yeah, I think the scientist inside of me as an early age did start with space. Mm-hmm. And then let's just learn about what's happening on our planet and what's going on here. Yeah. But the space, and I'm certainly not a scientist, but the space program has always been fascinating to Mm -hmm. me. The shuttle missions of the 80s. Of course, we had a couple of tragedies, the Challenger Mm -hmm. and Columbia. But, uh, you know, I've just always looked up to these people who are willing to risk their lives. Their lives, yeah. To further our understanding of of everything, of space, of our own planet, mm-hmm. and to further technology. We've learned so much from all the space missions, and I know they're extraordinarily expensive, and that's probably going to be the next battle in getting back to the moon, which mm-hmm. the administration hopes to do to by the year 2024. Uh, and it was it was controversial in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the reasons that it, it actually happened is because John F. Kennedy announced in, I think it was May of 1961, that by the end of the decade, his his goal was to get a man on the moon. And, of course, he was assassinated about two and a half years after that. So maybe it was uh, the fact that, you know, this was the, our late president's this was what he dream wanted. and goal that there was more motivation at that point to spend that money. But, of course, again, we were involved in the Vietnam War at that point. Yeah. We were losing lives every day over there. And there was political and racial strife within the country but still, somehow, we managed to go forward and, and put people on the moon. And it was, it's, you know, it's still just a highlight of our lives. Yeah. It, it, I don't think that we'll ever forget that moment in time. I don't think so. And I don't think we should. No, I don't think we will. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on Cloudy with a Chance, of podcast, Cheryl. It was Thanks. a pleasure this to have you on. This is my first appearance with you on your <laughs> podcast, and I get to work with you every day, which is wonderful, McCall. I admire you so, but thank you. this is fun to uh, to be with you on the podcast, and I'll come back anytime you want to talk about anything. Well, I take the, uh, the invite, and you'll be back. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you. <laughs> yep. Bye. 
Shop Jermaine Ford of Beaver Creek, minutes away with an experience miles above. Delivering the right car, the right price, the right way to the Miami Valley and beyond. Take advantage of our low-priced tire guarantee and extended service hours on Saturday. With same-day appointments and mobile service options available, our goal is to fix your car right the first time, on time, every time. Just off of 35 east of 675, Jermaine Ford of Beaver Creek left behind the plaque with the words, here men from the planet Earth first set foot upon the moon, July 1969 A.D. Thank you for listening to Cloudy with a Chance of Podcast. Our next guest has been a guest on Cloudy with a Chance of Podcast before, and we're very excited to have him back because of this exciting anniversary that we're going to be uh, experiencing on July 20th, the 50th anniversary of the lunar landing. And today we have on Boonshoff uh, astronomy educator Joe Childers. And Joe is here to tell us a little bit more about the astronauts themselves and what we've learned since we landed on the moon. Good afternoon, Joe. How are you today? I'm doing fine, McCall. Thank you so much for joining us once again. And this is incredible what happened 50 years ago. I know about the three astronauts, obviously Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins, and I know that they were all a part of the lunar landing themselves, but in just a brief moment uh, before we came on air, you're talking that there was so much more to what they did than just that. Can you explain um, each role that these gentlemen played and how it really helped us to get on the moon? Okay, so we are going to do this in order, chronological order. Neil Armstrong was on the Gemini 8 mission. So the Gemini program was 12 missions that were learning how to do the tasks that we would need to do for the Apollo mission. So that was a way for astronauts to get experience, for mission control to get experience, and for us to figure out how we need to do things. Uh, Neil's flight um, had a malfunction Soon after they docked for the first time, I believe, with the um, Agena spacecraft, which had been sent up for them to practice rendezvousing and docking with. And um, just seconds before, uh, he and his, um, his pilot would have lost their lives from this incredibly fast spin that the spacecraft was in, he successfully deployed the uh, backup system, and even though they had to end the mission, he um, he was able to to save the crew himself. And um, also, they learned from that many of the um, problems with the Gemini spacecraft, and also um, problems that were revealed in their training. Because in retrospect, he could have done other things that would have enabled the mission to go on. But he did what he had been trained to do, and nobody blamed him. They, they uh, decided that they needed to be more thorough in their training. So Neil's contribution was more with the um, actual mechanics of the space capsule, the Gemini capsule, and also with the training program. So next was Michael Collins on Gemini 10, and his role was to um, be the first one to visit from one spacecraft to another. So they docked, which they'd already figured out how to do, with that Agena target spacecraft. And he got out of the Gemini capsule 
and uh, spacewalked over to the Agena and attempted to do various tasks there. And he had a lot of trouble doing these things. Uh, the, he got more tired and more hot, you know, body temperature-wise, than they had expected. And so what uh, Michael Collins' contribution was helping to understand more what was needed for spacewalking and in particularly doing tasks in space, not just floating around, but actually accomplishing something. And so in his flight and the next Gemini 11, uh, it, would, it came out that doing the spacewalk thing is actually kind of difficult. Mm. Buzz, all, uh, his contribution was he flew on Gemini 12, the last one, and everybody knew it was the last one, and they knew they had to figure this out. Um, Buzz uh, came up with the idea of training underwater, where you can add weights to yourself, and then you have neutral buoyancy, which mimics the, the weightlessness in outer space. And with that um, realistic uh, training program, he was able to figure out what needed to be done when, uh, little tricks that would help things happen better. And his space flight was um, perfect. All of the um, all of the tasks were done. He didn't overheat. He didn't get tired. And the plan that he had made up for himself of what order to do things in worked great. And so all three astronauts contributed one way or another through the Gemini program to the success of the Apollo program as a whole. That's amazing. I, it's so crazy to think that um, that happened only 50 years ago and how much yes. we've learned since then. And it's just been leaps and bounds since then. Now, the initial launch was on July 16, 1969 at 9.32 in the morning, Eastern Daylight Time. And yep. it took them about four days to travel to the moon. That is that typical to, for the length of time to get there? Yes. Um, that, the, that distance and the amount of time that it took was similar for all of the Apollo um, missions, as far as I'm aware. Um, today, for them, was kind of a travel day. They um, they did a, a TV transmission, but mainly they just, you know, did housekeeping and just waited around. Mm -hmm. Isaac Newton was, was running the show, and they were um, going away from the Earth and towards the moon. And it will be at, um, it will be at 11, 12 tonight when the spacecraft... Uh, would have gone from the Earth's gravity influence into the Moon's gravity influence, rather mm -hmm. when the Moon's gravity became stronger than the Earth's gravity. Now, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were the ones that were boots on the ground on the Moon. Michael Collins was the command module pilot. Mm -hmm. And I saw an interview with him recently saying, was he jealous that he didn't get to go you know, stand on the moon, and he said, no, his role was very important, and he had the best view in town, basically. Can you speak to how important his role was from where his vantage point was? He was the one that was piloting the command module. When Neil and Buzz came back up from the moon, he was the one that 
rendezvoused with them as he had helped to rendezvous with the Agena spacecraft in his earlier mission. And uh, he was the one who was needed to be at the right spot at the right time. In fact, he was practicing um, during some of the time that he was up there alone, things that he might do if he needed to actually come down to where they were. If they mm-hmm. had not been able to get to a high enough altitude, he would come down to to meet them. He also, um, because the command module was attached to the service module, that was the one that supplied the electricity and the um, the oxygen and also the engine that was going to get them back to the Earth. Uh, he was being essentially the, the pilot of that. And I don't know for certain, I, I can't say certainly, but I think that if uh, Neil and Buzz had been attempting to rendezvous with an unmanned spacecraft, uh, it would have been much more difficult. I don't know whether to say whether it would be impossible. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, Michael Collins, every, he's always the third guy. Nobody ever I've, – right. I've heard many things this, this week talking about the two that landed mm-hmm. and not about Michael. But he, uh, he had the right temperament for that particular role. And his autobiography, Catching the Fire – is probably the best of the astronaut um, biographies. Certainly, it's the best one that I have read. Yeah, that's how I felt when I saw his interview. I was thinking, you know, we always hear about Neil and Buzz, but Michael played a vital role in that happening and that happening smoothly and all three of them being able to get up into space and back home. So I, I did want to give him a little bit of a shout-out. As far as what we've learned from that day till now, can you give us a little insight as to why that mission was truly so important? All right. The, um, the first thing that we did with Apollo, and in fact, this was one of the very first tasks that Neil had, just in case they would have to cut the mission short for, for whatever reason, was to collect a sample of the lunar um, soil. I guess you call it regolith. It's, a, it's like a dusty mm-hmm. Uh, in any case, um, so the, getting a return sample from the moon was critically important. And to this day, the samples that came back from the um, missions that landed, the six missions that, that uh, successfully landed, are incredibly valuable and very well protected. Um, there are meteorites that we find that have come from the moon. We have one here. But those have been through the atmosphere, and a violent pass through the atmosphere, and then weathered on the ground, perhaps, depending on how long they, it was before they were found. When we go to the moon, we can choose where we are going to sample from, and we can bring them back pristine, having never in, interacted with Earth's atmosphere. I'm I would be shocked if they don't continue to manipulate them in vacuum. Mm. That's incredible. Um, So I know that Boonshoft is doing something special for the anniversary. Can you give us a little um, teaser as to what 
we would see if we were to come visit the Boonshaft on Saturday? Okay. Well, actually, it actually begins Friday night. Okay. We're going to have a, a free presentation of a couple of episodes from the uh, miniseries From the Earth to the Moon at 7 p.m. That's free admission. And then on Saturday uh, in the planetarium, we're going to be running the original uh, TV broadcasts so that we can experience what it was like to be watching this happening from our living rooms and uh, some and some commentary in there to help us understand what's going on. The uh, education department is going to have all sorts of hands-on science activities and also some fun demonstrations all around the theme of rocketry in the moon. We have a uh, exhibit here temporarily that has authentic um, mission control consoles from the Apollo uh, program, and uh, that that's a way that uh, guests of all ages can role play what it's like to be in mission control. Many people think that if they want to have something to do with with the space program, they have to become an astronaut. But for every three people that went into space in this mission, for instance, there were thousands of people on the ground helping them either to build and test or being uh, mission control during the flight. That's magnificent. Hopefully I'll get a chance to come out and see you guys this weekend if I don't have a chance. Are there any other big events that you guys will be doing this upcoming summer? We have a uh, Super Science Saturday, August uh, 17th. That's a free admission day, a Saturday, and that theme is Stemapalooza, so all about uh, science, technology, and engineering, and math. Well, thank you so much, as always, Joe, for being on Cloudy with a Chance of Podcast, and I'm sure it's going to be a party at the Boonshoff this weekend, and I can't wait for you to be a guest once again. I enjoy coming on. I can't wait to be on again, too. Joe is always a wonderful guest, and I was so thankful that he was on with us today. Also, thank you to Cheryl McHenry for joining us and telling us those amazing stories about Neil Armstrong. It was thrilling to listen to. Always remember that you can subscribe, listen, download to Cloudy with a Chance of Podcasts on the podcast app on your Apple phone, as well as on Google Play, Stitcher, and WHIO.com. Throughout this broadcast, you've been listening to snippets of Walter Cronkite. This is from a segment that aired on CBS. After being on air for more than 30 hours, these were Walter's final words. Two Americans with the alliterative names of uh, Armstrong and Aldrin uh, spent just under a full Earth day on the moon. They picked at it and sampled it and they deployed experiments on it and they picked away uh, some of it to pack with them and bring on home. Above and alone, a satellite of a satellite uh, that orbited the third member of the Apollo 11 team, Michael Collins. His bittersweet mission it was to guide and uh, watch over the command and the service module whose uh, power and guidance system provided the only means of getting home and still does. Now at this point in the journey with the lunar lander reunited with the mothership and the astronauts preparing for the rocket burn which will send them back home here, certain times and images remain that I've noted here. 4.17.40 p.m., 17 minutes and 40 seconds after 4 Eastern Time, yesterday, Sunday, July 20th, 1969, the moment the lunar module touched down on the moon's surface and men will forever remember. 10.56 p.m. Sunday, the moment that Armstrong's foot first touched the lunar crust. And 1.54 p.m. today, the instant of liftoff from that newly named Tranquility Base Camp.
There were the ghostly television pictures we all saw of Armstrong and Aldrin on the moon. Armstrong's first words, a small step for man, a giant leap for mankind. And Aldrin's two-word description, magnificent desolation. And left behind, the plaque with the words, here men from the planet Earth first set foot upon the moon, July 1969 A.D. We came in peace for all mankind and they left the flag of the United States flying there too. Left behind also hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of cameras and hardware and equipment discarded for the return flight. A small disc with messages microscopically reduced in size from the leaders of the world. An olive branch, symbolically at least, and two medals in memory of the three Americans and the two Russians who died in man's recent quest for the moon. All this uh, comes rushing back to us now as we think of the round-trip moon flight still in progress and still some critical maneuvers yet to perform. And with this flight, man has really begun to move away from the Earth. But with this flight, new challenges for mankind. A challenge to determine yet whether uh, in coming to the moon, we turn uh, our century-old friend in the sky into an enemy to be invaded, conquered, exploited, perhaps someday left as a desolate globe once more, or will we make the most of it as perhaps a way station on beyond to the stars? Apollo 11 still has a long way to go, and so do we. This concludes one of the longest scheduled broadcasts, the longest in the history of television, a rather short history it is, but I think a luminous one. We've been on the air 32 hours here at CBS News, a space headquarters. Uh, I, as the man who has sat here in the seat uh, a lot of the time, uh, sharing it uh, with uh, my colleague David Shoemacher and uh, with Wally Shira, Arthur Clark, others, our distinguished guests we've had, and our correspondents all across the nation who you've seen on television. But for more than that, for the literally hundreds of technicians, engineers, associate producers, producers, writers who've produced some of the nice words that I hope we've spoken well for them here. Uh, for all of them, thanks uh, from Walter Cronkite, CBS News, Space Headquarters, New York. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.